Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Cole. And I'm Louise Polanker. In the torrent of new content that explodes out of all media platforms every week, we try to cherry pick some that are worth your attention. And we also have amazing guests as well. This week, we have two ladies who have made enormous contributions to the planet. One, as a public servant and successful political leader in Los Angeles, Jan Perry. She's now the executive director of Shelter Partnership, which is deep in the fight against homelessness in Los Angeles. And we also have a lady who has been a pioneer in women on film, Joyce Chopra. She's a producer and a director of both documentaries and features. She earned great notoriety at a time when men dominated the field even more than they try to now. She's written a wonderful new memoir about banging her head against the glass ceiling called Lady Director. Joyce will be with us in a moment, as will Jan. But first, Wheezy, what do you have? Oh, Fritz, I've been watching. Have you have you watched TV? Have you you should try it. I've been watching on the TV. You probably on your tablet or on your phone even you could watch uh, Netflix. And I saw this week a Jasmine's Blues and I'm going to tell you about it. A Jasmine's Blues is especially close to the heart of Tyler Perry because it's his first screenplay, the first screenplay he ever wrote 26 years ago. At long last his partnership with Netflix has brought it to life. In 1987, an unsolved murder compels an elderly black woman to grab her cane and hike into town where she deposits a purse full of letters onto the desk of a bigoted Southern lawmaker. As he reads, we travel back in time to the Deep South in 1937 where a boy called Bayou falls in love with a girl called Bucket. Tyler Perry's tale of forbidden love and family intrigue and unspools 40 years of secrets and lies against a soundtrack of juke joint blues and it pulls back the cover on a hidden world in which certain light-skinned blacks might endeavor to escape the agony of racism by passing as white. A dangerous practice fraught with its own brand of terror and heartbreak. Jasmine's Blues stars Saleha Pfeiffer, Joshua Boone, and Amira Van. It's loaded with glorious juke joint scenes and sounds, and the story just grabs you by the soul and stirs vigorously. Jasmine's Blues is on Netflix. I can't wait to see it. My friends have recommended it. I just haven't gotten around to it. It's just so compelling. Like it's right up my alley. My selection this time is the movie Amsterdam. Now, reviews of this film have been mixed. But I thought at the very least it would be like a master class in acting. You've got Christian Bale. You've got Robert De Niro. You also have John David Washington, Margot Robbie, Mike Myers, Michael Sheehan, Chris Rock, even Taylor Swift, who does a really reasonable job. Acting. <laughs> it's so reasonable. Uh, no. You're like, well, not. No, but, uh, but you know, you, you, you lower your expectations for rock stars who are okay. putting a costume. <laughs> That's your best compliment of Taylor Swift. There you go. Okay. This is supposed to be a 1930 screwball comedy. As the movie notes in the first frames it's based on a true story but a story that few people are aware of three people meet in europe during world war one they are bert a down on his luck doctor played by christian bale valerie who is margot robbie as a nurse and john david washington who plays a lawyer they all land in amsterdam where they spend time recovering from the war and forging a close friendship in 1933 they all settled back in the u.s and that's where the hijinks begins. They all get roped into intrigue when Liz, the Taylor Swift character, mysteriously convinces Bert, again a down-on-his-luck doctor, to do an autopsy on her dead father. Now, it's billed as a comedy. There's slapstick, there's mildly funny humor, gorgeous cinematography, but the movie doesn't really start to make sense until Robert De Niro shows up in the last third. 
He plays a retired general. And this is where the movie begins to shed light on a little-known event in American history about the rise of fascism in the 1930s. All of it is done to reflect on the current threat to democracy as we approach the midterm elections. The point it makes is interesting, but you might get impatient waiting for the point to show up. But I liked it. Amsterdam is good. Wow. Well, you've got me intrigued as as to the point. So happy to introduce my friend here. Jan Perry uh, served as L.A. City Council person in the 9th District for years. That area used to be known as what's called a food desert. And Jan was one that helped to enact restrictions on fast food restaurants to make people who lived in that area uh, have the ability to buy healthier diets. She also served as general manager of Los Angeles Economic and Workforce Development. She's currently the executive director of Shelter Partnership. This is a nonprofit organization that is deep in the fight against homelessness in Los Angeles. Since its creation in the 80s, Shelter Partnership has distributed nearly $300 million worth of goods to 250 homeless shelters in Los Angeles. I also serve on the board of Shelter Partnership. Very proud of that. We are the largest warehouse facility in the United States serving homeless needs. Jan, nice to have you here. Good to be here. It's nice to see you both. What kind of dog set. are we hearing in the back? Because I thought you were disagreeing with something I was reading about. <laughs> you know what? He, he, he hates it when I get on Zoom. Oh, they so, know, I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, We'll do the best we can. Oh sure. no, it's it's we, we're we're just glad to have the chance to we talk. We want to meet Doggy if he wants to be on your lap. Okay, yep. You can, yeah. <laughs> Next time. Next time. <laughs> so, Jen, homelessness is uh, yes. turning out to be maybe the biggest issue in the LA mayoral race. Whoever mm-hmm. gets elected, right. that will be the issue that will prove their worth. You agree? Yes, absolutely. And it has to be the one who has the the plan that makes the most sense and that the voters believe can be accomplished and they have to speak to how to implement how to fund uh what the thresholds are that they have to meet and with what within what time frame this can't be theoretical uh we've run out of time we are beyond the tipping point of the number of people who are living on the street in tents and in encampments and in some cases just right out there in the open and, uh, you know, it's not good for the people who are on the streets either. It puts their lives at risk. They're subjected to untold violence. Uh, it shortens their lifespan. And if they didn't have mental health issues before they got there, the longer they stay out in the street, the greater the likelihood that they will develop mental health That's issues. That's an interesting point. And mm-hmm. while we're talking about that, are, are, are there any little glimmers of hope that you see in the solution of this problem, like uh, the development of uh, transitional housing or uh, the transition of uh, abandoned hotels. Is, is there anything you see out there that looks like it might work on a larger scale? Well, there's no one solution that will work. And there is so much to be done that any effort will move the needle even slightly in the other direction. Um, you know, people have their favorite approaches. Uh, some uh, you may be reminded of the encampment that was in front of the Veterans Administration over there on San Vicente. And then they moved everyone inside the fence mm-hmm. uh, and they had the support services uh, inside there with a grouping of what, what are called tiny homes. Uh, while they had a bit of a, a blip on the screen uh, with an accidental fire, it was a good structure to immediately get people off of the street 
inside the fence in there for services. There were hygiene facilities, laundry facilities, and then to recreate a community that was safer and more stable so that you can begin to, uh, if you will, minister to people or administer services uh, to folks and to be able to pull them back in the other direction. That's just one example. Well, folks tend to look at homelessness as something that should be easily solved by the correct party if the correct party were in, you know, like the the problem at the border, like these problems should be easily solved. And they're, they are complex problems that are some sometimes could be seen as a symptom of a, of a greater societal problem. Every homeless person has a different story and mm-hmm. has different needs and a different reason why that they are currently without without a home. Can you help people better understand the complexity and the compassion that's necessary for us to to even approach solving this? Well, start with this compassion. Would you leave your own family member to live out there on the street? I wouldn't. So you have to start from that perspective that everything you do, the resources you direct should be intended to get people off the street and into help and into recovery. And it starts there. Um, And a lot of folks are out there for a number of reasons. You'll rarely find someone who's out there because they just lost their job. It could be they lost their job and they've got other things going on. Uh, You can call that a a dual diagnosis or a multifaceted diagnosis. Uh, Some people are vets who, you know, are trying to recover from PTSD and haven't gotten into a a very structured situation yet. Uh, People who are victims of sexual violence or violence in general. Um, You know, women who've uh, been beaten, people who have addiction issues, and of course, people who have mental health issues and have just, you know, fallen through the cracks of our society and our provider network or our, our continuum of care, if you will. And so they need help, they need structure. And while, while we deliberate, they continue to suffer and the community suffers as a whole. You've probably been asked this question before and it may sound mm-hmm. completely naive to even ask it, but when we see somebody who's on the street and asking for money, should we give that person money or should we hope that they would be better served through one of the programs that's providing help? Um, I'm going to be, I'm going to be very blunt with you because yeah, I have been asked that question a lot. Mm -hmm. Giving somebody who's on the street money actually doesn't do that much good for them, Mm -hmm. but it might make you feel better. It, Mm -hmm. It makes you feel better. It's like when the people drive to Skid Row and they open their trunk and they give people sandwiches and then they go away. Did they advance their cause? I don't think so. I used to tell folks, if you really want to help folks, go rent space in the James Woods Center, which is right in the middle of Skid Row, make a hot meal, and then bring some social service providers in there and start providing services to people who've come directly from the street so that they can get help. Don't just drive in and drive out. That doesn't do anything. Same thing goes with the money. Mm -hmm. You give somebody some money. So you gave a homeless person some money today. And then what? There's no mm-hmm. what after that. People need services. They need structure. They need somebody they can follow up with. Um, if you have a favorite provider, uh, you might ask them for their business cards and keep them in your car. And instead of you know, giving people money, give them a card and say, call this number for help. And there are a fair number of people who live on the street who have burner phones. Okay? Mm-hmm. So there is that ability to find a way 
to communicate, to call for help. Well, well, this issue is part of your consciousness every single day of your life because you're executive director mm-hmm. of Shelter Partnership. Discuss the business model. I'll tell you what drew me to Shelter Partnership. You know, I've been hosting their events for 20 years or so. Was the, was the brilliance of the simplicity of this organization. With very few staff people, they do this huge amount of work. And uh, it, describe how that works, Jane. So, um, as, uh, as you know, you've been out to the warehouse. So the warehouse is out in Bell, California. It's 105,000 square feet. And we do have a small staff, but they're very focused and very, very experienced. Uh, we receive new goods, unused, not for sale, from uh, the private sector, from corporations, from family-owned businesses. And uh, we distribute them throughout our network of about 300 social service providers in and around the the county of Los Angeles. I was just on a call yesterday um, with some of the staff and a group was expressing an interest from the Inland Inland Empire. Uh, So we have a little little relationships building in Ventura, something in Orange County. So the word's beginning to spread and we're sort of the, the ground zero for providing these new goods, not used goods, but new goods that are not for resale to support organizations who actually have clients who are unhoused. So you have a company like Gillette or Procter & Gamble that have changed their packaging or their logo. And really, most of the time, the, the product inside the packaging is exactly the same as it was before, but they clear them off the shelves. And so they decide they'd like to donate 200,000 razors to Shelter Partnership, and then we sort of supply them to the homeless shelters. It's wonderful. Or mattresses, mm-hmm. or just daily living things, uh, bedding, clothing at Christmas time, toys. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a constant flow of stuff, and and we 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 look for partnerships from two places: from corporate. If you have a company that has a product that sort of meets the description that we're talking about, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you're an individual that understands the need and feels helpless in your work on homelessness, let us know. Shelterpartnership.org. Anyway. That's great. No, you 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 captured it uh, very very well, and I kind of look at it as we're part of that human infrastructure delivery. Uh, system with the connectivity to all of these organizations. And uh, we're the hub and you're seeing that uh, graphic right now. Now, do you have, uh, you can you can choose to pass on this question, Jan, but do you, ha- do you have a mayoral candidate that you think is better suited to address this, this problem? <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're funny. <laughs> Hard pass. Hard pass, okay. <laughs> Not get... Oh, hello. I work for a nonprofit. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Okay, so I can say vote we for Karen Bass. We love everybody. Vote for Karen we Bass. Love- <laughs> okay. Well, it's your podcast. It's my podcast. You can do whatever you want, but we love everyone. <laughs> Homelessness in the United States has increased like 30% in since 2015 or something. So mm-hmm. uh, how, how about L.A. County? Has the increase been as severe around here? Uh, yeah. <laughs> in case you haven't. Notice, no, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you have. So I, I've got a few stats here. So we have roughly 70,000 homeless residents. Over the last five years, the number of folks in LA County uh, has increased 
by about 20,000 people. It was 50,000 in 2017. It's uh, 70,000 in 2022. And as you know, we are constantly the national news because of this disaster. And uh, just a little side note, some of the fastest growing demographics in the community are people who are LGBT, LGBTQ plus people ages 18 through 24 and older adults over the age of 65. So we've got issues on both ends of the age spectrum, mm -hmm. young people and older people who are quite likely on fixed incomes and are being squeezed hard in this market. So we've got the boomers coming up. Mm -hmm. That's a large, large group of people who are who are uh, getting into the 65 plus group. And then we've got kids who maybe kept whatever their wiring is. They kept it under wraps so that they could live out their childhood at home. But now they have the Internet and ways to express themselves and recognize who that who their actual truth, right. who, who they actually truly are. And once they express that in sort of a certain type of a household, it's considered like not a non-starter and you're going to have mm -hmm. to leave. So I, that's mm -hmm. what I heard when you said those two demographics. Yeah. Yes. And that's exactly why I brought it up because it's, it's growing rapidly and, you know, there are some good providers, uh, you know, and I, I can't name all of them. So, uh, you know, I don't want to forget one, right. but uh, that are, are targeted to people who are LGBTQ plus, um, you know, uh, in an area where younger people tend to congregate, um, just on the edge of Hollywood or into Hollywood. Um, and then for for older adults, we have to just keep building housing that is affordable for people on a fixed income. And we have to move faster. We're not moving fast enough. Mm -hmm. right. I, I just want to mention before we run out of time that um, th there's never been a greater need for our, the services that Shelter Partnership provides right, right now. And like other nonprofits, uh, COVID tagged us. You know, because the irony is that uh, there was never a greater demand on the services we provide. Uh, and then th there was never a greater strain on the services we provide because of uh, homelessness in the COVID environment. So uh, I think it's just straight up um, important for me to appeal to you. If any of this resonates with you, uh, go to shelterpartnership.org. You can make a donation of any size. We have lots of opportunities. We have social events coming up. We got a bingo thing. We got all kinds of stuff going on. Check it out. You might want to be a part of that. But I, I think if you, like a lot of the population in Southern California, feel helpless about this, and every day you drive on an underpass that seems to increase in its population, um, this will make you feel empowered to help Shelter Partnership because it is a direct line from your philanthropy to the homeless situation. We, we hope you'll give us a view. That's right. That's right. And thank you, Chris, for saying that. Um, you know, we are, uh, we get a lot of philanthropic uh, funding and we solicit private uh, donors and just regular, regular folks. Everybody helps. And, you know, when we, when you help us, we're able to help um, thousands of people just stabilize their lives and, get on a road to recovery, you'd be surprised what just getting a dental hygiene kit can do for someone's quality of life or their health, uh, their confidence, their self-esteem, or to have a clean set of clothing so that you can go to a job interview and really 
get back on your feet. So everything is geared towards helping those who are already helping a client base and putting people on a road to recovery. Well, you're doing a great job, lady. You've only been in that job for a year, but your experience in navigating the political environment in L.A. has been so helpful in helping us be successful. So thank you for what you do, Ms. Jan. (laughs) You're welcome. And uh, go to shelterpartnership.org for information if you're a company that... There's no minimum that a company can donate, right? You 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 have to give thousands of mattresses or something. You can just give a little amount. It it has to be non-perishable, though. Yeah, yes. And of course, uh, donations of money are always welcome. Mm -hmm. And there's no limit to that either. (laughs) Okay. All right. We'll talk talk to you guys later. Nice to meet you. Bye-bye. Our next guest has produced and directed a wide range of award-winning work, films that have been seen in theaters and television and festivals all over the world. She's had amazing accomplishments, like Joyce at 34, that we're going to talk about. This is a documentary she started during her eighth month of pregnancy as a massive example of self-abuse. It's about the conflicting demand of juggling a new baby, a career, and a marriage. The film was so groundbreaking that it's part of the permanent collection at the New York Museum of Modern Art. She did Girls at 12, an interesting documentary on PBS, and a fiction film that won a grand jury prize at Sundance starring Laura Dern and Treat Williams called Smooth Talk. And the Lemon Sisters with two of my favorite humans, Diane Keaton and Carol Kane. And she has a new book out that we're going to talk about that will drop the first week of November. You can pre-order it right now. It's called Lady Director, Adventures in Hollywood, Television, and Beyond. Joyce Carol Oates says... Joyce Chopra has written a devastatingly frank and unsparing memoir of her life as a film director, a woman director in a field notoriously dominated by men. The reader is astonished on her behalf, at times infuriated, moved to laughter, then to tears. Lady Director is one of its kind, highly recommended. Joyce Chopra, welcome. We're so happy to talk to you. Oh, thank you. I loved hearing all of that praise. Does any of that ring familiar to you? Anything in your introduction? (laughs) I'm going to tune in every day to have you read. Fantastic. (laughs) Listen, you were born in Coney Island, New York. That's right. Talk about your love of films uh, germinating in Saturday matinees when you were a child. Oh, that's how I spent every weekend. My older brother would take me to the movies while my mama cleaned the house. We, we were kicked out of the apartment. And uh, I could talk a lot about my mother, in fact. When you think about what she, she was a school teacher, third grade. And this was in the, uh, oh my God, in the 40s. And she would get up and probably at six in the morning, make our lunch, get on the subway, go to work, come home, go shopping, cook, clean prepare her next day's lesson. I can't imagine how she did it. When you when you talk in your book about that scene in, in Joyce at 34 where your mom is having her, her fellow teachers over, oh, and yes. you, you ask the question, you know, how did you juggle parenting and having, having a career? And I think the reason the scene stands out is A, you ask the right question, but B, these are all teachers. So they know how to present themselves. And, and when they spoke, it was beautifully. And they were saying things that I don't think had been said out loud before in public about experiences that, that all women have if they attempt to be a mom 
and have a career? I distinctly remember the question. You know, they got together probably every other month. They were all retired, as you said, and they would show pictures of their grandchildren and just gossip. That's what it was about. And I, these are women who'd had lunch, what, 30 years every day in, this, in the lunchroom for teachers. And I asked, did you ever feel conflicted about mm. working and being a parent? They had never, ever once talked about it. That yeah. was so, so they exploded in that conversation you're talking about. Right. Just exploded. Right. And they're each so, so good at expressing themselves because they spent their career in front of people speaking to. I know. Little... I never thought of that. Yes. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, some of the points that they made about how if I'm if I stay home, I'm depressed and that's not good for my kid. If I go to work, he misses that's me right. and that's not good for my kid. I, and she she's put her hands down on the table. She said, I can't win. She said, whatever we do is wrong. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. And so, and I don't, and, and Dina, our producer, was talking to me about that scene before the show today, and she said, nothing's changed. The whole point mm. is that your childbearing years are right in the hub of you, when you would be launching yourself yeah. into your career. That, that, so biology dictates that these two things are going to struggle with one another. No, you're right. I'm, occasionally, I'll be at a screening, and afterwards, young women will say, do you have any advice for us? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, have a, have a husband who will share in the work. Right. And right. luckily I did. I mean, it took a little bit of arguments, <laughs> but but even then I did most of the work. It always would wind up that way. I was the one who would think about what are we going to have for dinner tonight? What are we going to have dinner tonight? That wouldn't occur to him, but he would be happy to clean up or cook something. But I was... You were the point person on the home front. He just, it didn't enter his mind. It, it didn't. And every every person is different. Every couple is different. And, you know, yeah. and every marriage is different. But at least it felt like he was open to hearing you. Yes, he was. He was indeed. And he was super, well, he was super handsome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have to, I'm sorry, I have to point out, I was extremely lucky. He was a, he was a writer. He, he died a while ago. But that meant he was home. So that I, he could be there, mm. you know, even though he had a, a, a study that was his own and, and he had a, he had to write. But that was that was really extremely lucky to have that. And also a gift for your daughter to know that he was nearby. Yes. Yeah. yes, she had a daddy. Yeah. 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 Well, before we discuss your very interesting film career, let's talk about your very interesting life before your interesting film career. You graduated from Brandeis University. And started Club 47. This is two blocks from Harvard Square. It was a music coffee house where people like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan played at the start of their careers. You have to have some interesting stories or encounters during that period of time. Well, I had wanted to be an actress. I went to the, a school in New York called the Neighborhood Playhouse. Mm -hmm. And I was living at home with my family and I just, I loved them, but I wasn't used to being at home. I'd been away for four years. So I began to get anxiety attacks taking the subway into Manhattan. And I didn't know what they were because nobody ever talked about that. But, you know, the, this New York subway train would suddenly stop in the middle of a tunnel and you could sit there for a half hour and no way to get out of the train. So anyway, I lasted about a half year. I went back up to... Uh, Cambridge, Mass, Brandeis is about a half hour out of away from Cambridge. Anyway, I 
I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't want to be a secretary, which was about the only thing I could kind of, if I learned dictation, maybe I could get a job as a secretary. Anyway, I brought into a classmate. We said, let's start our own business. And it was, wasn't going to have music. It was just going to be a coffee, a place where you could come and hang out and we'd have newspapers or whatever. And then a friend just came, do you want us to play? A musician said, do you want us to play opening night? We said, oh, that would be great. So we started out as a jazz club. We were a jazz club for about a year. And it was only, I tell it in the book, uh, a very pleasant person came by and said, uh, the, the daughter of a friend of mine is a freshman at BU who's a folk singer. Oh, no, we don't do folk music. We're a jazz club. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, would you at least oh, just listen to her on the night you're closed Monday night? So, okay. And so this young, I don't know if it was Joan, probably about 18, this young girl came in with her long black hair and she went up on our little stage. And her voice in that space, you know, is just extraordinary. So we hired her to do Wednesday and Thursday, our slow nights, for $10 a night. And that's how we came to hire. She sang there for about two years. And one by one, all these folk musicians started showing up. And it just built out of that. Wow. So, yeah, yeah and it, was... it was a complete chance. Well, it was, it was the time and that, you know, sometimes circumstances meet the time and meet the location and boom, off, off you go. So I wanted to talk a little bit about documentary filmmaking, because when you when you come into it, it's kind of default for you because it's not what you wanted to do. But it was right at the time where, as you describe in your book, people could put a camera on their shoulder and follow someone around. So you come in halfway through the making of a film called Primary. Can you talk about that? Yes, I have to place it for your people listening. This was 1960. And I had been trying to get a job. I had no idea how to do it. Um, I didn't think to go to Los Angeles because I had never heard of a women director. I really didn't know of any. And there weren't any books about it. So I went to New York and very traditionally, I slept on friends' couches and I had a long list of names and I was just about ready to give up. And somebody said, well, you should, I'm going to send a, a recommendation letter. You go and visit my friends over at blah, blah, blah address. And I said, I don't want to, I didn't say to this person who was a good documentary film director, I said, I didn't want to do documentaries. I wanted to do fiction film, but it was the only opportunity I had. So I wandered into this place and the guy came out very harried and he was named Penny Baker. I don't know who the hell he was. And he wasn't known then, I mean, at all. He he and another few other people had, okay, should I give a whole background about handheld cameras? Because I could go on and on about that if you'd I like. Just, I, would, I, I just thought it was fascinating that before that film, this had never been done. And I just think it... Yeah, it was right. cinema verite starting yeah, in the United yeah, States. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, what what Penny Baker, Leacock, and a guy named Bob Drew did, until then, cameras were very heavy and they were on tripods and they did very traditional filming of public events, let's say. And Penny Baker and Leacock used transistors to make the cameras portable enough so you can put it on your shoulder and have a tape recorder that was separate from the camera. 
Mm-hmm. That meant you could follow people. Now, when I looked at that film, I didn't know what he, Penny Baker said. Here, I'm busy. Sit down and watch this film we just finished called Primary about the Kennedy Humphrey primary fight in Wisconsin, 1960. I look at it and I, he comes in and I don't know what to say to him because I don't know why it's special. <laughs> I took it for granted because in features you see cameras following people through mm-hmm. rooms. Mm-hmm. So I was tongue-tied, but he hired me anyway for $50 a week. And it was the beginning of a revolution in documentary. And what you see on TV, all report or reportage is using handheld cameras. And Penny Baker shot the 1968 Monterey Pop Festival, which yes. was the explosion of Jimi Hendrix and, yes. uh, and Janis Joplin. And that, that's an iconic piece of filmmaking. Absolutely. He's done great films, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it got was, it got you started. It, it's how you learned how to edit. It's how you learned how to create story, and a lot of great skills that you acquired through through documentary filmmaking. Correct. Well, yes, I was. I I immediately was taken with editing. There's something I just understood. You could. What's well, like word processing? Really, is the same thing. You can move your words around. You mm-hmm. move your images around. You get different results. It's great. It's wonderful when the material is good. It's great fun. Right. What what lessons did you learn working in his apprenticeship? I don't know that. What did I learn? But I mean, did his, did his style affect your style later on when you were? Yes. Directing? Well, of course. Yes. Now that I think about it, well, well, Joyce at thirty four is a variation on what they were doing in that way that came about. You're referring to the film about. It was a year in my life when my baby was about to be born, and it goes through the first year. But I, I think I may have been the first to do a, a documentary about a pro, quote, quote, private person. I mean, when you look at all the films that Leacock, Penny Baker, Bob Drew did, they're all public events, political, music events. Um, and when I told Penny Baker, he thought I was crazy. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, who, who would be interested in a woman having a baby? It was just unheard of. Uh, so it's the same style as handheld camera. Uh, except mine was more controlled. I I knew I, I knew what I wanted to film, whereas something like Primary, the first film we're talking about, you have no con- you're not controlling what you're fil- you're just following those characters. But still, I can't be more specific than that. But it's it's uh, it was a little radical that you would do private people, then and I would... followed it with a few more films uh, about these three twelve-year-old girls. Oh, I love that. That was beautiful, and, and the idea that that yeah. to a man that not that. We're all different, okay? All humans are different, and we're all across gender spectrums, et cetera. But, like, to a guy in the film industry, the only important thing would be to get up close with something grand, you know, to give people an up-close look at something grand. And as a woman, you're saying, no, there's beauty in, in the unique, in the personal, in the in the intimate. There, there's beauty yeah. here. And, and you're talking to 50% of the population that would be like— yeah, I, I want to see that movie. I want to see these girls. I was a 12-year-old girl. Yeah. I tell you, you know, I there were no distributors for films about women. And I, I luckily, again, it's just a coincidence of things coming together. I found out about these 
other women who had just started a co-op called New Day Films. I don't know if you know about New Day. When did I make? I made this in 73. So in 73, there were other people who had made documentaries about women, not many, but a few. And they happened to meet up at a festival and they said, nobody wants our films, but we know there's an audience. So mm -hmm. they started their own distribution. Right. You talk and about I, that in your book. Yes. Okay. And I joined it. And what it meant is uh, we, we collaborated on putting out, well, this is a co-op that started out with maybe seven or eight of us. And it's now probably got 150 members. And it's not just about women anymore. It's, it's a whole range of subjects. But we each had to uh, do our own publicity. Mm -hmm. I had to carry film cans to a library. You know, if I wanted to mail them, I would, let's see, am I in this picture somewhere? Here I am. Yeah. There, that's me. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yes, Julia Reichert, who's won two Academy Awards by now. Thank you, Thomas, for finding that. That's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, but it was thrilling just to, no, there's some, some library wanted to purchase my film and I would pack it up and go to the post office and I loved it. Mm -hmm. Now, and I want to. Yeah, go ahead. Finish, nothing else. That's that it. Thought. It's New Day. I just thought that, you know, we could travel back to the dawn of film, you know, because everything that I've read about it and documentaries that I've watched about it, women are playing like kind of key roles in the silent film era they were uh -huh. you know they were happy to have women direct at, at the dawn of silent films when the role seemed yeah. secretarial in nature and maybe an extension of writing the story scenarios but once men saw the power and the money potential in film you got making, it. women were pushed to the side talk about that dynamic a little bit because i find it so fascinating oh well, you know i i only know about it superficially in mm -hmm. a sense uh certainly when i started I didn't know there'd ever been a woman director. There weren't any books about it. And it was only uh, in recent... I don't think people started writing about that until the 1990s, even, wow. Louise. I, I've been researching it. It's, it was astonishing. Uh, how, uh, yes, early, early directors right through the 30s, 20s and 30s. Um, and they directed Catherine Hepburn. You name them all. They were all being directed by women. Not all, I mean, not all the time, but, but yeah, women often enough. were directing. And then you're right, somewhere in the 40s, you're all changed. It's marginalized. Now, now we know that there, there's a, a, a lack of uh, female directors in the uh, fictional narrative type movie, but how, how is the balance in documentary films? Is it less or more or? It, it's, it's probably more than equal. No, I'd say it's equal. Hmm. But to start with, there were very few. I also, in the book, I say uh, there was used to be a, an important film festival for documentaries called the American Film Festival. And they would have categories, and it was a big deal to win the blue ribbon in your category. Mm -hmm. And the year I did Joyce of 34 with Claudia Weil as a photographer, uh, I won the Blue Ribbon, and there was an article, I think it was in Varieties, reporting that for the first time, half the awards, Blue Ribbons, went to women. Um, and, then, and then the person concludes, but this will never happen in features because there's money involved, and documentaries don't involve money, usually wow. don't. Wow. And so... 
Yeah, it continues. But but lately, do you find that streaming, uh, thank goodness, has provided more platforms to expose documentary films? Because I can go a whole week and just watch documentaries on Netflix yeah, and wonderful. Hulu. Yeah, it really yeah. is. It's great. I don't know if it's any more lucrative for the documentarian, but it certainly is great exposure. No, it's not. They, they're usually you I don't mean, make money. You, you don't make money. You spend money, and so you have to find funding. It doesn't make money, but yes. they certainly are a, a beautiful art form, and they're certainly celebrated, and there's space for them in streaming media, which you know, in celebration of them. So people like with music. People will continue to make music and documentaries, whether they make money or not, just because of the joy of creation. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to talk a little bit about your um, 1985 feature, Smooth Talk, because you experienced great success and acclaim winning at Sundance, and then you met with the wind turbine of the Hollywood studio system, and you talk about it very artfully and graciously in your book, but you but you also don't really hold back in terms of talking about the individuals that were responsible for marginalizing you or pushing you aside or mowing over uh. you. And it's heartbreaking for the reader. So, it was heartbreaking for me. Yeah. So give us a little thumbnail on what all went on. Oh, here's Lauren Treat. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> what a cutie. Yeah. Well, it was it was a wonderful opportunity to make that film. That, and that came about because of a TV program called American Playhouse. You guys remember that one? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On public television. Yeah. And that was for independent films, and they put up the most money they could, which was about a half a million dollars. You had to find the rest. But it allowed me to make this film. And it was great because they didn't interfere at all. They were ideal producers. I mean, just supportive, doing everything right. Public television, you know, over and above the Ken Burns phenomenon, yeah. but you have like POV, you have exactly. independent lens, yes. and, and, and Frontline, to, to me, is one of the greatest news documentaries yeah. ever. They, the PBS <laughs> does some of the best documentary work ever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, it was, and I still had, uh, in the last, I'm going to skip way ahead, but in the last 10 years or so, I've been doing uh, documentaries that are on PBS, yeah, uh, it's that I've sort of come around, but it's you know I'm in my 80s and I'm glad I could still work. Make, is, is that uh, part of the By Kids program where you have? That's right, By Kids. Yeah, yes. By Kids. Okay, I didn't know how it was pronounced, but talk about talk about that. I, it's fascinating, and you've been all over the world doing this. Uh, well, I, through through friends, I met a woman who had started. Uh, a nonprofit called Buy Kids, and initially she had Ford Foundation money, um, and it, the whole idea doesn't sound very original, but the way she was doing it worked out well, is to get people like me to basically work for free to mentor young kids with cameras and help them make a documentary about what she would say globally relevant stories, but indeed they were, <laughs> and the first one. I did, took me to India to a school for tribal girls. And I'll test you the way I was. Do you know what tribal girls are? Or oh, you've read my book, so you know. I only, <laughs> only from the book, but I, I asked my husband, and he and he really is pretty articulate with world cultures, but he had not heard of it. So I think Isn't it's Isn't it amazing? Yeah, yeah it's, it is amazing when you, you know, you describe them as the, the native people of India, correct? The, the, this is Firing Their Hearts. Is that the movie you're talking fire, about? Fire... Fire in our hearts yeah. is part of a song they sing. 
I think I can't remember the statistic. What's something like a hundred million people living in India? Yeah. I mean, something is staggering. My friend who uh, was running a nonprofit in India is the one who told me about it. She said, there's a school for tribal girls. And I said, you mean Dalits, the untouchable? She said, no, no, Joyce, don't you know the tribals? I said, no, I don't. And I started reading about it. And these are the people who were the original inhabitants who were like our Native Americans, just pushed away. And what language do they speak? Well, they're all over India. Mm-hmm. I was I got connected to this one organization that was in Maharashtra state, and they speak Marathi, M-A-R-A-T-I. Okay. And, uh, and the girl, you found this remarkable girl, but circumstances in her life presented her with conflicts, age-old conflicts, correct? She, this school had when I was there had about 200 girls starting the age of five through high school uh, who were from they were the first in their families to be educated and their stories were all remarkable they most of them had already worked on the most mean you know on junk piles whatever just to, to earn five cents a day and the family was persuaded in each case to send their daughters to the school and I asked, uh, I was emailing with a woman there who spoke English to help me f- select one girl that I could mentor. And this great young girl uh, made this film. I hope you get to see it because I'm, it's very touching. That's and what I wanted to ask you. Are these still uh, accessible? That one and my beautiful yes, Nicaragua? If you go, which you, which you all, if you go to, I don't know. Go to bykids, B-Y-K-I-D-S dot org. And if you can't figure out how to do it, I'll send you links to oh. it. But yes. Yeah, we'll put, links in, we'll put the links in our show notes. I'm pretty Please sure do. I saw the one about the Nic- Nicaragua because everything that which, you're writing which about. One? The, the, kid, the kids who... Uh, who grow coffee? My beautiful Nicaragua. Oh, not Nicaragua! My beautiful Nicaragua. Yeah, and that's on PBS, right? That one made then, it. To three, I've done three. I've done the beautiful Nicaragua. Um, the last one I did is about a young girl, Faith, who has uh, cerebral palsy. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. And that was shot not far from my home, so oh. that was much much easier to get to in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but again, you. I just learned so much about the world and feel so grateful that I could still work and make make movies. Oh, it's wonderful. Just wonderful. Uh, and you're giving the gift of this. Yeah, all these different stories, these each stories, one. But also the gift of filmmaking to each child that you hand a camera to. Now they have a voice. They they know that they exactly. can capture their, their family. Exactly. Their story has meaning in, in the greater world. Uh, yeah. I wanted, I wanted to know if you might have some advice for men in any kind of field in terms of how they can participate in the inclusion of all, of all voices and all talents and all skills that may, maybe have some microaggressions that we don't all recognize, all of us, men, women, you know, everybody. But how can men help in, in, in lifting up women to where wherever they belong, wherever their talents might take them in whatever field? Oh gosh, that's a huge question. I know, I know, but I, I, I just. <laughs> what do think, you think? I think there's I'm somebody a, interview I think, you. I think there's a lot of men who really do care and really do want to be a part of the solution, but they don't even recognize where they're they might be. 
you know, feeling, getting their feelings clipped and reacting in such a way that shuts the woman down so that at the next meeting she doesn't say something because, mm-hmm. you know, her opinion, her your feelings or, or whatever. I don't know. Maybe it's human nature. Maybe it's not just male-female dynamics. But I think more of it is male-female dynamics than we're, than we're thinking about on the daily. But you were – your career put you in these places constantly where you're thinking – you know, how do I say this to this man so that he doesn't take it out on me and lets me have my creative voice and those types of dynamics? It's testosterone poisoning. <laughs> well, I mean, Chris, what do you think? You're you're our male representative. Oh no, I'm I'm a bad example of my uh, gender. Well, it, there's one place in the book where you kind of talk about what maybe where you maybe put your foot wrong with Sidney Pollack and not that well, you, I didn't not that I you should know. Yeah, go ahead. Louise, I knew nothing. Uh, yeah, yeah. I really I, I had I was I lived in Connecticut in the country. I made documentaries my whole life. I had no I, I I had no idea how to handle it. When I think back after I made so many other films and dealt with all sorts of producers, I would have handled it entirely differently. It, what, as I write in the book, what set us off was he called me into his office. We were in pre-production for Smooth Talk. And he said to me, without any preamble, Joyce, you got to fire your cameraman. And I was so taken aback, I didn't know how to respond. So I, I bristled. And if he, if he said that to me now, I'd say, oh, Sydney, what seems to be the problem? Tell me. <laughs> I wouldn't say it in a condescending voice like mm-hmm. that, but I would have tried to engage to find out. And then I'd say, didn't you see the movie you've all admired? Suppose no, I would have I I <laughs> it goes to your question. I guess the, the word is to listen. What's bothering him? Mm. You know, what you know, what matters what's to going, you? What's going on here? You know, what help what me can we do together? Or Yeah, help me understand. Yeah. But, you know, it felt like maybe at the age you were, it felt like he was saying something that he wouldn't say to a male director. You get to choose your cameraman. You're the director. So you're 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 putting your feet down and saying, excuse me? Plus, you've got this person who you've told has this job, and now you're responsible for for him. And it's just offensive on on somebody. Yeah. And he went on to my cam. He went on to have a wonderful career. He's he was excellent. He died unfortunately, but yeah, you talk about uh, your friendship. That was that was a really beautiful story. Yeah, no, I I really I had no idea how to handle him. Well, Dina, so our, our producer, has some thoughts. She's a thirty-something female. I'm forty. <laughs> oh, she's forty. Yeah. Oh, you you qualify. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I actually, I don't have anything to say, but I do want to ask a question to Joyce. Um, I kind of want to steer the conversation back a little bit to smooth talk. I just think it's one of the best movies ever made. And, and I'm saying that complete, you know, not to flatter or anything. That's honestly my thoughts. And, um, you talk in the book a little bit about like the inspiration from Joyce Carol Oates book and that line when, um, Mary Kay plays character says, you know, I look in your eyes and 
All I see is trashy dreams. That just so, I love that line. It'll stay with me for the rest of my life. It captures sort of that powerful dynamic between mother and daughter in this incredible way. And um, I just, um, I mean, this isn't necessarily just about smooth talk, but if you you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit to, you allude in the book, um, the challenges of taking something that is written as a as a short story or a novel something that's written and turning that into a visual you know putting it into a visual medium i'm not the first to say this but uh, i've learned through experience working with either a short novel or a short story is easier to adapt than because i tried with tom to uh adapt a very big novel, Theodore Dreiser's Sister Carrie, which is, God knows, 800 pages, you know. It was going to be a mini-series, but even then, it's just too much. Uh, Joyce Carol Oates' story was very lean, but you just take a line like the one you're talking about. I look in your eyes, and all I see are trashy daydreams. Or there's a, it starts, I think her first line is, she was a familiar sight around the shopping mall, something like that. And immediately, all these scenes appear in your head. And the job that I had with my husband, who was the writer, was to flesh out this world from just a sentence, just a hint from Joyce Carol Oates. And that that was very productive. And that, that's sort of how it came about. Because yeah, Joyce Carol Oates doesn't create... You don't know where they live. You know nothing about them. Mm-hmm. And you had to fill it all um, in. And that, that must have been rewarding. It was. It, I what? say in the book, it was the happiest time of my life oh. working with Tom on that script. Mm. Because, oh. again, we had American Playhouse producing and nobody to come and bother us. Right. Just let us alone. Yeah. So what about the storytelling difference between documentaries and feature, you know, f- fiction oh. films? I mean, uh, I'm, I'm guessing here, but it seems like when, when you do a fiction film, like your, your husband wrote the script, and so you, you know the three acts, and you know the beginning, middle, and end, but, but a documentary has to be left to its own momentum sometimes, Hi. and you, you have to let the, 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 the actual events tell the story. Uh, which do you find harder, and which is more pleasing for you? I wouldn't. I wouldn't really choose. I mean, in the document, the ones, ones like Girls of Twelve, which you were talking about earlier, there is no resounding. You know, so many documentaries. Uh, well, the easiest format is an election. Everybody's competing, blah, 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 and it ends with the night of the election. You know, it, uh-huh. it or, or or show is put on, or you know, and the films that I've done largely don't have that structure. Uh, they just sort of flow, getting a feel for life. They don't have any resounding ending because there are no conclusions to the kinds of films I made. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's it's uh, it's a little scary in a way because you don't know what it's going to be. And so when I edit, I can't explain. I just sort of get a feel of maybe this scene should go with that scene. Well, Louise, you've done a documentary, which I haven't seen, but... You you must know what I'm talking about. I feel like it's it's like making music. You have a feel for it. You mm. understand the rhythms and the beats, or or you don't, or you yeah. don't. So it's it's. I don't know that it's something that can be taught. Certainly, a lot of the flow of story can be taught, but the actual editing of like, do I give this a moment to breathe? 
before mm-hmm. I lay in the next frame. Well, that, I think, is an instinctive, like a musical talent yeah. that you yeah. either have or you don't. How do you feel about that? I might say this, in the, but you're hitting all the points I might have made in the book. For some reason, I had an ability to do that. Right. And I don't know why. Right. I'm not saying I'm very good with camera. I just, for editing, I just just felt at home in it, you know. Do you have the same crew for all of your work? No. Although okay. I work most with Jim Glennon, who shot Smooth Talk, and who's the one that uh, Sydney wanted me to fire. Ah. It's such a hurt. It still hurts, yeah. And I never... I never, uh, you can't see me. No, sorry. I'm just going to jump in real quick. You can't see me, but I, I, I'm behind the tech. Uh, I'm running the tech room uh, and the Zoom Hello. and everything. Uh, I, I work as a cinematographer, and I'm actually shooting my first feature in December. I'm Good. curious. Uh, I've shot a documentary feature. I've done dozens of shorts and things. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious if you have any advice for, for a cinematographer working with a director on a, a, a micro budget. It's like a 100K feature, very small. Um, oh. we're, you know, it's, it's based in LA. It's, it'll be small, but I'm very excited. I'm curious what, you know, I don't know your advice to a camera operator slash cinematographer. You've been be. an operator before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I came up as an, a first assistant and then so I did, did the operator. Jim Glennon. Yeah. Yeah. James yeah. James Glennon was yeah. an operator. In fact, that problem was that he was Sydney Pollock's operator on a lot of very well-known films. And what Sydney actually said, now that I'm remembering, he said, you got to fire Jimmy because he talks too much. Oh, goodness. And, oh, wow. and the crew and the actors loved Glennon because he talked. He was oh. funny. He relaxed people. Maybe Sidney wanted to be the focal point and he found that threatening. I don't know what it was, but yeah. then. <sighs> but he had a habit he, he of He wanted you to do what he couldn't do when he employed him. He didn't have the guts to fire him, so he wanted you to do it. <laughs> but what is I, I think know. what Thomas is but, asking wait, is like, I, want, I want to give advice about yeah the relationship between Jim, what Thomas is doing and the director like how, what Jim how, said to, yeah the most important thing what Jim is the one who taught me basically how to stage scenes I've never done a feature film in my life I didn't know where to place the how to do it how to think about it and he was a great teacher and but he said to me just just tell me what is the most important shot you have to get that tells this story mostly for you is to make sure that in the rush of the day, we do that shot. Yeah. And that's how focus my brain around a whole bunch of things. But mostly just collaborate, just collaborate, just listen. It's the same, the question, what do you advise men? Collaborate, listen. <laughs> I like yeah. that. Is there something that, that Thomas can get before you break? Like, is there something that a cinematographer can grab just so that you have it in case you need it? Like, while everyone else is leaving the room, is or just like, I don't know, 20, 20 seconds of footage that he could grab that would be good coverage to have? I don't understand your question. Say it again. Well, I'm not, I'm not I'm a filmmaker in that, in that way, but I just know that with, in documentaries, like, you want to kind of, like, I guess we call it spray the room. <laughs> and uh, you just want to, like, while you're there, you just want to kind of like, you know, let's say I'm interviewing you and I've got my camera set up on you. Like, as everyone mm-hmm. else leaves the room, I, I just want to get some more coverage. Is, is uh-huh. it more limiting when you're working with I tracks? Think, I think, and, I mean, for this feature specifically, there's it's, it's pretty much all handheld. And I think I'll bring uh, some of my documentary knowledge into it in the sense that 
I will get those small in-between moments that you, you don't, when you're shooting a documentary, you don't maybe set out to go get them, but you're shooting, maybe you're with someone in their house or their space and you want to pick up, you know, the, the flavor of their space. You have these, you can get inserts and things of small things in their space. I feel like I'm going to take kind of that approach to some of the scenes for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like that's maybe what Weezy's alluding to, to focusing on is, is focusing on those small intimate moments between things. Don't get lost in the, the shuffle. Is there any way you could have a second camera? Mm. Uh, Would save so much time. Maybe, but I I, I, I like shooting single camera because it gives me more control. And and in the in this scenario, I think I uh, wouldn't be able to hire someone I trust with the right Friend. amount of money. You know what I mean? Even if you, what yeah, if you never people, used even it? friends need money though, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but okay. it's more about that that control. I, my first feature, I, I, we've talked about two camera and. We just don't I've have enough money to do it the right way, in yes, my opinion. Yes, I know. I, I, yeah. Uh, but yeah, more, I, more so, I like the control. <laughs> you want the control. Yeah. But well, you would still be controlling it. I, I would, but it's first feature, small budget. We, we're not going to okay, have... Okay, I'll stay out of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're only... I feel like we're budgeted for a, a solid one camera team. Yeah. Let me ask you this, uh, uh, George. There are many fantastic film schools in the country... Many of them right here. USC's film school, Chapman University yeah. now has a good one. Um, are there any that you've had experience with that 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 the women who are starting out should look to because somehow they've um, they've uh, championed the role of women in filmmaking? I know nothing about film schools. Oh, there okay. weren't any when I started, mm-hmm. and I really I've never taught. I honestly know zero. You know more than I do, probably. Mm-hmm. Because you talk to a lot of people. Oh, is that right? AFI in LA. That's a graduate program. Graduate program, but they're uh, they give um, they they heavily they're heavily focused on like elevating minority and female voice oh, behind the, behind the camera. Yeah, they've got like a women's film film festival and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you must be uh, asked to speak often, and I know you talked about this no. in the book. You're not you're not asked to speak very often. Well, suddenly, suddenly there are a bunch of some things because of the book and. Uh, my publisher reaching out to you so well i guess everyone uh, wants to talk about maryland because they're comparing your maryland uh with oh yes i've done that i i did an interview with hollywood reporter yeah yes. I, I saw that and i guess maryland's like princess diana we never tire of hearing more about her right just it's amazing no yeah. i i almost didn't do that interview because i hadn't seen the movie and i wasn't going to see it but then Oh, well, it's pretty I shocking. I didn't make my way all the way through it because I couldn't. It was traumatized. But uh, but I, why, why, why couldn't you? What, for what reasons? I I guess uh, when I find that some the content I'm watching on the screen is painful for the perform for the performers or just something anguishing is going on, I get where I, like mm-hmm. I say to myself, I don't think I'm enjoying this. This is actually pain, painful yeah. to sit through, but I understand what they were trying to do, and I will finish it. It's on Netflix. You can press pause and go back to it. But I had, I did about an hour, and I'm like, oh my gosh, Marilyn. So, <laughs> she cries one more time. Well, it's. More I'll tell like, you what. That girl's performance, I thought, was yeah. phenomenal, though. She was yes. very good. She was but very it's, good. It is a disturbing watch. So, I mean, as a kid, I would say, oh yeah, if it's rated, you know. PG seventeen. I'm. I know it's going to be upsetting, so I. I think I'll stay away. Well, I, I have to tell you, the, the version of Blonde that I did from the same novel, uh, 
when it was released, the actress who played Marilyn got rave, rave, rave reviews. And not everywhere, but I would say largely my movies were panned. And now people are looking and say, oh, that's not so bad after all. Mm-hmm. I think people have a very hard time portraying Monroe in any way. I think it's a, I think we shouldn't have adapted Joyce Carolosa's book. I'm serious. It's it's a fantastical book. Have you ever read the novel? No, I haven't. But tell well, me the tell me why it's called a novel and where where she was deviating from the truth and imagining. Oh, she's imagining that she's inside Marilyn. Okay. And she has and has scenes that are just almost surreal. I mean, it's just when you read it, it's you you trust it because you know this is not the facts. Mm. You know, it's it's a takeoff on what what that person, Marilyn, she, does she call, I don't even sure she calls her Marilyn in the book. Wander. It gives her subconscious a voice. That's right. Oh, but okay. It, it, and uh, anyway. I, I just found out the other day that the whole thing with the son of uh, Charlie Chaplin and the that's son. That's all made of, up. It's yeah, all that, made up. that whole thing. But she was friends with both of those guys, but they just never got together in that triumvirate, no. right? Right. As far as I know, they hardly knew each other. Oh, this wow. was it was it was convenient in the novel. Mm-hmm. So she, yeah, I think a lot of people watch it and assume it's based on truth yeah, or based on yeah. someone's accounting of. And the in truth. the novel, you know, it's not. Right. I, I can't remember. I've read the novel twenty years ago. It mm-hmm. was a, I had just finished it when the producer called me and said. I just optioned this book for CBS. Do you want to direct it? Oh, yes. You know. Wow. Uh, so is your version of Blonde available? Yes, it's available. I hadn't known it. I looked it up. It's on Amazon okay. Prime. And there, I'll give you my experience. There's a free version, but don't choose that one because mm-hmm. it's full of commercials. Okay. <laughs> so choose, pay the dollar ninety-five. Sure, exactly. <laughs> that is a good And you tip. can see it. That's a strong uh, Yeah, Poppy's text. wonderful. Yes, Poppy it's got, it's got some very fine actors in it. Who was the uh, uh, Marilyn in your movie? A woman named Poppy Montgomery. Oh, I don't know her. Do you know her at no, all? No, no. Yep, I've heard But of now her. I'm going to watch. Oh, yeah. So we're excited about your book, and you're going to go on Thank the you. Uh, author. There she is. There's Miss did, Poppy right there. There she is. So how did it feel creating a book as opposed to creating a film? Was it as rewarding or more work or less work? Or? It was more work. Yeah. <laughs> I, I worked on it on and off for about three years, and, and I never meant to write a book. It was going to be a way to keep me busy during the pandemic. Hmm. And. I just kept writing and I had no intention of ever publishing it. And it was when a friend read it, who's a writer, she said, oh, this is really worth pursuing, you know. It's really, really good. I loved it. It's a great piece of work. And it drops November 8th. You can pre-order it now. Yeah, this book is just absolutely so captivating. I I really highly recommend it. You know, for every every human, it's not just if you're interested in filmmaking or interested in women or women pursuing a male-dominated field. It's just a great book. So many wonderful stories and and you're just kind of, we're, we're your ride along. Dina, did you have Yeah, I just want to say that any film fan, anyone that is into movies that is like considers themselves like a film person Mm. just needs to read this book. I mean, it's like, I think it's an absolute must. Yeah. And I also think thank you. (laughs) When you talk about the Hollywood film 
you know, studio machinery or whatever, I, the way that the way that how many people have to be in your corner for you to get anything done? It isn't uniquely problematic for women. It's hard to get anything made, uh, I think. And so your book really describes that that journey and how you have to get all your oars in the water and just kind of like keep rowing because it's not it's not we all watch things and think, oh, here's a new thing. It may have taken 27 years to bring it to the screen, like with Tyler yeah. Perry, as I talked about at the top of the show. Tyler Perry's new film on Netflix, he wrote that screenplay 26 years ago. That's how long it took for him to get it made. So yeah. it's difficult for everyone. Is, isn't that correct? Yes, but and I think, I mean, the big lesson is have a producer who's with you, mm. you know, who, who supports you in every way that you know. Mm-hmm. That, that that's that's the protector. Then they'll get out because, of your way and let you make the film. Well, because if you're directing, you've got so many things to think about. You yeah. know, you uh, you got to decide on the props, on this, on that. And in addition to just figuring, how am I going to shoot the scene that's coming up tomorrow? But they're the ones who deal with managing mm-hmm. to make sure that everything is going to run well mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, protecting you so and, the coast is clear for you to create. But, you know, we didn't talk about television. You know, when oh, I was saying, television, yeah. Uh, when I directed my first law, oh, excuse me. Law and Order? Yeah. Law and Order. Law and Order? Special Victims Unit, I don't remember the year. Let's say it was 2002. I don't remember the exact year. As I say in the book, they had been running for four seasons, and they probably did 30 shows a season. They'd had maybe two women in all those, the four years, and they were, you know, not very good, which was nonsense. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I, I went into a chainsaw. I had the same reaction. They just didn't want a woman on the set. Period. Unless she's like the murder victim. Exactly, the victim of the week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> God, <laughs> the sex crime victim of the week. That's dark. I just remembered like that really interesting part in um, your book, Joyce, where you talk about when you were let go from the Bright Lights Big City project and you were talking about how the press just like wouldn't let go of it because it was like they were trying to basically send out a warning like this is what happens if you have a woman (sighs) try to direct you know a big feature film they set you up to fail (laughs) they set you up to fail to prove whatever point they were trying to make times are changing to a degree there are more women directing features not enough by any means, but it's more than it used to be. And it's all in the last few years. There's been a huge change. And you paved that way. And you, you've done such wonderful work. And a lot of your work was on TV, TV movies of the week. And, you know, telling all kinds of great stories that were probably seen by more people on television than would have gone to see them in, in a theater. Yeah. So, Well, you're, you're so cool. You have the, I just know you have a copy of my book on your desk. We do. Thank you. You got an advantage. I only have one copy. The only thing is, we take ten percent of the sales from by advertising. Yeah, we <laughs> You'll get twenty cents. <laughs> before before well, we close, I think yes, I, a lot of people would who have never raised a a girl might want to know about the American Girl universe that you stepped into when you oh, when you made it. And I I, I find it I find it fascinating. So tell uh, get us up to speed on American Girl. Well. My agent sent me a script, uh, and he said, it's, it's about an American girl doll, 
And I thought it was animation. And I said, are you crazy? And, and I had never heard of American Girl Universe. Have you before? I have. tell you something. In my daughter's home right yep. now, there are yes, $10,000 worth of American Girl <laughs> apparatus, oh, dolls, equipment. Oh, they got the parents by the throat. And they are sh- shaking money out of their pockets. Do you buy it for them? Do you, are yes, you I'm totally guilty for it. <laughs> it. See, it's people like you who support all of that. Mine, no, I, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a horrible thing. And now I, 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 no, I could wonderful. use that money now. I know. Uh, I, <laughs> I, uh, but the marketing of that and the way they built the backstory on each of the dolls really engages young girls emotionally. I, I no, I, I had never heard of it, and I went to the library. I lived in a small town, and the librarian said, "The girls come uh, once a week with their dolls, and we and we talk about their story." Okay, the Ameri- for those who don't know what we're talking about, the dolls are based on historical ca- periods, and the one story I had was about a girl during World War II, and how that affected her life in the United States. But Papa goes off as a doctor. And there was so much to learn there historically. Mm-hmm. And for me, having grown up in that period was a pleasure. And I love working with young kids. I think that aspect helps parents to get over their guilt at spending $200 on a doll because, oh, my child's learning about the pre-World War II period. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I would ask you, for instance, your daughter is now 20 or 21 years old, right? How, does she know more about American history having owned these beautiful dolls? And learned their stories. I would say not. Not. <laughs> no. I. It was. It was for a moment. It was. It was a, a flash of popularity. But these stores, they were like, uh, they were they, like Apple stores. It's not in, past tense. They go to Times they Square. They still are. <laughs> yeah. Or go to go to Radio well, City. I, I'm out of that. I'm out, I, 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 I jumped out of that environment. You escaped. Yeah. Now she has to feed her own habit. He's like, you're going to have to get a job if you're. <laughs> no, they're there. very expensive dolls. Oh it, it, my God. Yeah, have but you ever, have I, you I don't think tradition? I've ever talked this much on a show before, but I just have to say something about American Girl dolls because I was obsessed with them when I was a kid. And I'm an immigrant. I came to America when I was seven years old. And oh. I loved that there was these dolls that represented girls that were, you know, some of them were immigrants to oh, America. That's and that's right. that was like so, I mean, I was obsessed with that because I was like, finally, like something I can relate to. There's not a lot of stories like that in the media at the time. Representation. No, that's really interesting. And there are also diverse i mean they have girls of different ethnicities i want to tell you the best part about it if you go to a american girl store probably online too they have books for girls about how to manage your bank account how to start a business what to do when you get your period which never i mean my god Mm wait there was nothing like that for Mm -hmm. us no, Zero. but they want you to start a business so that you can afford to buy more American Girl <laughs> oh, dolls. Oh, you're so cynical. <laughs> but you're no, right. I'm... You're right. It's it's a lot of girls' issues are just sort of whispered. You know, come here, I'll give you a pad and, you know, don't tell your mom I told you this. No, we you know. didn't know. It was called falling off the roof or something awful like that. Oh, wow. Falling <laughs> off the serious. roof. I'm serious. We, were, we yeah. called it the monthly visitor or Aunt Flo. Aunt Flo was coming. Falling over. off the that. roof. That's fantastic. Aunt Flo's here. Yeah. I can't go swimming. I don't remember any of the others, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't talk about it. Oh, it was just so... No, it was whispered. Up, it was I'm, whispered. I'm sorry. I'm going to bring up something. Yeah. I don't... You're not uh, for children, you sure. There was a headline in the New York Times the other day in an article and it said, half the people in this world have a clitoris 
but nobody knows anything about it. Did you see that in the New York Times? I didn't, but it sounds about right. I love no, it. Was, it was fantastic. That should you be your next so book. so much. Hmm? Mm-hmm. That should be your next well, book. Well, then a friend yeah. joke, we're going to start a literary group for women called the Clitorata. <laughs> oh, the Clitorati. <laughs> That's funny. Wow. But hey, nobody... so when you were doing the American Girl, I mean, they, 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 were they leaning on you about the treatment? I mean, because they have a proprietary interest in representing. Yeah, well, they, we had, no, not the script, but the sets had to be replicas of this girl that I did, Molly. Uh, we had to duplicate the look of her bedroom. Oh, Lord. Uh, no, maybe that was it, her clothing. Mm-hmm. But I didn't mind because it was a joy to to be doing it. And I love the kids. It was like being back with my girls at 12. Mm. That's how old they were. Oh, they were. Yeah, they were about 12. Oh, that's wonderful. But it was one of my favorite films. (laughs) Yes. And people can watch. And what which what is your film called? The Molly story? I think it's called Molly, Molly, an American girl on the home front. Oh, okay. Awesome. So I'm sure we can find that. And I think there's a few American. They do a really good job with their films. I've I've seen a couple of them. I probably have seen this one. It's got Molly Ringwald playing the mama. Oh, that's perfect. Oh, Oh. what is this now? Here we go. There's Molly. Yeah. Aw. No, those are other. This is the girl here. Oh, there she is. She looks. She wins the contest. She looks very patriotic. Very well. That's that. Yeah, but it's yeah. I recommend this above all my other movies. Okay, awesome. All right, that's what everyone's going to do. We're going to view that and then discuss it next week. I don't know what these are. All these other American Girl. That's mine. But this is these are other. It's American a montage Girl of dolls. American Girls. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a whole. Yours is Molly. To do. All right. So when is your when is your book come out? Can people pre-order it now on Amazon? Yeah. Yes. It's, it's the publication date has been moved to the twenty second of November because they had. Problems with uh, distribute, you know, the whole supply chain mm. business has affected publishing as well. So, okay. but it's finally in the warehouse. But officially, it's the twenty second. Now they can order it from either Amazon or Barnes and Noble or City Lights, the publisher. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to thank you, and I'm going to read our closing credits, and then we're going to take our picture with you. It's a pleasure to talk to both of you. All right, here come your closing credits. Fritz and I have created a web hub to help you shop for gifts and save democracy in one fun move. Giftofdemocracy.com curates great swaggy merch from candidates and causes committed to protecting and defending our democracy. Fritz and I make no money here. We don't need it. We are not running for office this year. Our site is like a mall directory sign that points you towards the merchandise pages of worthy candidates and causes. It's the donation that counts. Democracy makes a great gift. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPath Podcast. And our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. And you can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in the Apple Podcast Store and talk about us on social media. You can sign up for our fun and dishy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guests, Joyce Chopra and Jan Perry. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I'm Louise Palanker, here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. Thank you so much, Joyce.
What a great conversation.